we talk about the disease of addiction being a disease of denial. But the truth of it is, is the human condition promotes a limited awareness of ourselves. And so what happens is, is I constrict my awareness to only see what I want to see. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. I'm Tom Rutledge, and with me is uh, Dr. Alan Berger, and with us also is our is our producer. But he is uh, uh, where, where is where is Patrick? Patrick's uh, in uh, Texas today. Patrick, my, my home, my home planet. Patrick escorted his mom down to Texas. He's on a mission of service. He's he's helping his mom get uh, go down there, take care of some business, and then we'll be back. Hopefully next week, joining us um, from Yucca and, Valley, and, California. Right. And and for and for for the listeners, it's like he's here. We're we're both looking right at him on our screens. He's he's it's, it's because of the connection he has. It's it's uh, to me now. This is an old reference that a lot of people won't get, but it's like uh, uh, it's it's like having Harpo Marx as our as our producer. Well, he called himself Patrick the Friendly Ghost today. So he's going to be Patrick <laughs> the Friendly Ghost on our chat. Right. So, so right. chat, when Patrick weighs in, he'll be weighing in on chat and I'll be reading his chat comments. So okay. That we well, well, that's good that we still have that because, because Patrick has a way of, 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 you know, kind of jumping in and asking a question or kind of redirecting us when one of us gets wander, wanders off into the woods, you know, of, of, oh, I thought of another story I'd love to tell everybody. And uh, so otherwise we we would just have to be watching for his facial expressions and wait, waiting. And and, and 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 I and I grew up. And we'll go, we'll we'll move we'll move to the topic of of mental health here. I I grew up having to read everybody's body language and, and facial expressions to know what was really the truth. So I would overread everything. So if he he just he just scratched his face, I would say, okay, oh God, he hates me. Um, yes, yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I understand that. You know, what I was just thinking about. Um, in one way, Patrick's here, but he's not here, is really capturing the essence of what we wanted to talk about today in chapter three in my new book. That's right? Is this, is that excellent is, segue, is, man? I, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting better at this stuff. You, I am you're getting that. Beautiful, beautiful. He's beautiful. here, but not here. And that was the story of my life for a long time. I was there, but I wasn't there. And right. in, in one way, that's what we're talking about is how we can be present in our life, but not be present at all. And that's yeah. what we wanted to explore today because it's such an important topic to to realize that even though we might think we're here, we might not be here. You know, we are all works in progress. And again, the important point is not to be beating the crap out of ourselves, but to be right. there to, to not to criticize, but to critique in a positive way is for us you know, to be able to go like, wow, if I was that out of touch, then I need to, this goes to humility. I need to be 
in the moment today aware that there may well still be things that that I am still becoming aware of and that a decade from now or a year from now, I may look at today and go like, oh my God, I can't believe that. It's like looking at photographs of yourself in the past. Yeah, so true, isn't it? It's so true. It is like looking at photographs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by the way, Patrick nodded his head, so that means he loves me. Yes, that's true. Okay. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, you know, that's so true. You know, it's just as an aside, let's just take a moment. You know, um, that whole area of reading someone's intentions and motives, they call it mind mapping. That's that's mm -hmm. the phrase that the uh, psychologists and, and uh, have given it, right? And, and that mm -hmm. what they found out is that any, most mammals have the ability to mind map. Now, as human beings, obviously, our ability is much more sophisticated and involved in stuff. But it's an evolutionary thing. It's part of our survival is that it's necessary to be able to read the motive and intention of another creature in order to know, are they friend or foe? Is this, am I safe at this point in time or am I not safe? And so here's where it gets built. That's instinctual. So right. you're going to have that ability just at a very, very, right, yep. nonverbal level to be around another person and register, is this person safe or not safe? Now, here's where it gets messed up. If your family does that gaslighting thing and says, oh, what you're seeing is not what you're seeing, mm -hmm. now that mind mapping gets distorted. You, you get, so the way I like to think about it is, is you lose the calibration you were naturally given, mm -hmm. right? We're just calibrated that way, you know, God's gift to us, right? We're calibrated to, to protect ourselves and to say, hey, this person's safe, their motives are okay. But if a parent comes along when you're picking up, hey, Uncle Fred here is not too cool. I don't want to go around him. And you're told, oh, that's your Uncle Fred. Go give him a hug. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to go give Uncle Fred a hug. What just happened? Yeah. Now you compromise yourself to please your mom and to you give into the pressure that you're getting to go give Uncle Fred that hug. And now you're starting to learn to not pay attention to those instinctual feelings that you have right okay okay but let me let me let me pause you there for a second because see that that's i'd never thought about this just this way it's one of the reasons i like talking to you alan because because you take me through things and i go like okay i got a new way of seeing something got a different angle on it it's because as a child you know your your mind mapping is working perfectly well it's like, Perfectly you know, it, it is, it is, but it's specific to this situation. And so what happens is we get that, that mind map that, because that's, that's, it's so important. We so often can, you know, always tell people when you meet your inner child, the first thing you need to say is congratulations. And thank you for, for, you know, making it possible for me, the adult to be here today, because without any guidance, without help, without, without Tom or Alan's books, it's like you made it, you figured out how to get through that kind I'm of stuff. Out. So which is so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which but but the idea is it we because we want to do both we want to be able to say like no your your ability to read these situations is is, is spot on 
It's it's like the problem is we began to apply that 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 very specific mind mapping to, gener to generalize things, and so like and you're right with even my jokes. It, it, so if 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 uh, Patrick tilts his head a certain way that my mother mama did, you know, or if he, you know, for me, if if a woman sighs. <sighs> You know, it's like I, there's a part of me that goes through the roof, you know, because of what that used, you know, and of course, what my wife helped me learn later was that that was called breathing. It's and it was very important to get that. But the idea is, yes, you got it right there, but it's not going to apply the rest to the rest of the world. And in our yeah. And our survival techniques, then what you're saying is then applying that through the years to the rest of the world is our becomes our contribution, not not blaming, but just our contribution to setting ourselves up. Well, like yeah. you said in the Thursday, <clears throat> Thursday night meeting the other day, which I thought was a great meeting this last Thursday. Mm -hmm. I love how you said we audition people for yeah. the roles in our life. And so if in our audition we're reading from the wrong script, meaning that we're not able to tune into who they really are. Like right. you said, what we do is we perpetuate these things and it's an unconscious thing. It's not yeah. like we're intentionally doing that. It's an unconscious thing. Now, you know, I, I used to, and I still believe this, but not as strongly as I did at one point, huh? but I believe we cause the trouble that we have in our life in order to give ourselves an opportunity to grow up, right? That's one of the things that we, I, I think we're wired that way. That was the great contribution of the humanistic folks in psychology, what we call the third wave in psychology. So, you know, they were they were responding to Freud's idea of of the repetition compulsion is that you just do this stuff because you're sick, right? And that right. what you're doing is just because you you've you know you've got a pathology and you've got to work through your pathology and not to repeat these things. The humanist came along and says, well, he's partially right. We do recreate these things. But the humanistic uh, psychologist said, but we do it because we want to solve it, not because we're sick, but because there's something right about us that wants to grow ourselves right. and, and complete ourselves and to actualize our potential, which I still, now when I say it today, I feel very strong about it. I think that's right. Um, well, so, but let me let me let me add this to that though. It's like because when I listen to to that, what I realize is one more way that we we humans we tend to we we get we love binary choices. Is yeah. it this or is it not this? It's like, and because the other way to look at that, like I said, you you've you've blessed me with this different angle on things, and it's like like the other way to look at that is is we could say it doesn't matter where that comes from. It doesn't matter if this is by design, which it can be. You get caught up in that that discussion. What matters is what you do with it, is which yeah. is absolutely everything about what you and I do. Yeah. What we teach well, when like I said I'm not 100 percent on that yeah, other thing, yeah. that's my new yeah, well, position on it. it. I said, look, it doesn't matter if you're doing it because of this or that. It really doesn't matter what's causing it. What's most important is what the heck you're right. going to do with it. Well, and I think some, and I think people like I think I'm fair to say people like you and I, we could. It's recreational and interesting to to, to explore how that stuff well, comes to see, be. And, I, and the, I, the reason I adopted the other one, and I think you'll resonate to this. See, mm -hmm. there's one of these things that I think has happened unintentionally is that we build in shame sometimes to these models that we have. 
And we Absolutely. don't pretend to, right? Like, you know, we talk about right. the newcomer coming to an AA meeting. And the newcomer's told, well, when they're trying to talk about something, they're saying, well, watch out. Your best thinking got you here. Like, you can't trust any of your thoughts. And mm -hmm. I'm, my good friend John Runyon said, well, that's true. But it's also true my best thinking got me here. I'm coming to meetings now. I'm trying to figure <laughs> this out. So it's not just this thing that I'm all messed up. There's something inside of me that is wanting me to grow in this way. And if I just start, like you said, to think of myself in this binary way, I'm all mm -hmm. bad or mm -hmm. I'm all defective mm -hmm. or I'm all broken. Mm -hmm. That right. now for John, when he was sharing this, this, and I can share this publicly because he was talking about it on, on some of the uh, workshops we did together. Mm -hmm. is, you know, he said it, it was already adding to this tremendous shame he already felt about himself as being broken and defective. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting interplay amongst all these things. Isn't it? Well, it's yeah. It, I mean, I'll tell you what, this is and, and I and I. Uh, I hope it's not taking us too far off the map, but it's like the, what we're talking about here is as we've been doing this for a zillion and a half years, both personally and professionally, we're aware, we are aware that, you know, and, and that all of these, each, each individual piece of this is simple, but not easy, but it, there's lots of simplicity in it. But when you put it all together, there's a complexity to that when, when, because for, for one of the complexities is that, that for each one, each individual who comes into this program in any way, in any particular way or any self-help uh, or 12 steps, it's like no, no two, we have so much in common. But no two of us are exactly alike. And so the people presenting this stuff and with us talking and all this can never know the person until we're in that conversation with that person. We can't know that specific uh, how that's going to everything's going to land with that person. So the idea I think one of those big disclaimers has to be that, you know, that and I think that's a, it, it's wonderful in the program that it says take what's helpful, leave what's not. It's like because sometimes take what's helpful, leave what's not means it's not helpful right now, but it might be later. Uh, but, but, you know, because if we could take any one of those things, hit the, hit the freeze, you know, the hit the pause button and say, say, okay, what's the truth about your best thinking got you here. It's like, I'm going, going like abs, you know, what I would say is my, my, uh, you know, my best thinking got me where I was in my life and my, and my, my wife's best thinking got me to AA. And it's, it's like, so, so the, in that particular case, eventually my thought, my thinking caught up. But it's like, you know, it's, it's so there's all kinds of different, you know, and, and I see this happening in our Thursday group sometimes is where people will ask, you know, and I've seen this throughout my career when people will read a self-help book or something and they'll ask, can you like I wrote a book about help, help write a book about uh, eating disorder and so people will leave me a, with just a question in a few minutes time to answer to say, give me some hints on how to recover from anorexia. You know, go, Jesus, it's like, you know, or, or those, this is my favorite. Do you have any thoughts on, on how, how to, how to get over an addiction? You know, do we have any thoughts? You know, it's, it's like, it's so much. And you watch people when they come in, they want it all. Yes. And we have to, we have to slow them down and say, take it easy. We're going to go one little baby. Well, step. That desperation. They want it. They want us. Yeah. I understand it. We've been there. Yeah. Yeah. I, me too. I mean, look, that, the pain is intolerable at times. At least they think it's intolerable. Yeah. Well, that's, and see, that's one of the things going back to going back to your book 
and just your 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 material in general one i think that is one of the well it is one of the things that i love about your approach whether you're writing to somebody or whether you're talking to somebody is is you bring that message you bring it uh with your own with your own person you bring it with your with what you have to teach and and that is that you know we actually you know we don't just have a tolerance for alcohol and drugs. We, we actually can, we can build a tolerance for discomfort and pain. And that's a good tolerance to build, to be able to build. We need to be able, we need to, I always say we need to be able to build that, that tolerance for that because to do this work, we have to go into it and we have to stay in it sometimes. And it's like, you bring that message again and again, that this is not, this is, you know, and, and it's, and to me, it's like, you know, the classic example of darker before the dawn. Yes, that's right. That's right. No, no, it's so funny because I, I refer so many things to, to Bill Wilson's nutshells, right? And one of his nutshells yep. was that recovery is based upon a pedestal of hopelessness. And most people go, wait a minute, I thought it was based on a pedestal of hope. I said, it is, but you get to the hope through the hopelessness. It's, it's that paradoxical stuff again, mm-hmm. it's that, is that we find hope by first embracing our hopelessness because that's the wake up call. And let's kind of now bring this back to where we wanted to focus on today is, is when I realize that what I've been doing isn't, hasn't been working. You know, that's why I kind of love when we've been focusing on the Thursday nights, the second half of the first step about how our lives have become unmanageable. When we get to the point where we truly embrace what that means, we start to wake up. But that takes a, a long, long time for most people in their life. And it, and it does take a crisis of personal limitation to start to wake up. But, you know, one of the things I quoted in that chapter, and, and I love this, this Russian philosopher, Gurdjieff, George Gurdjieff, and he said this, he goes, to realize that one is indeed in a state of sleep, one must recognize and fully understand the nature of the forces which operate to keep one in the state of sleep or hypnosis. He goes, it is absurd to think that this can be done by seeking information from the very source which induces the hypnosis. <laughs> it's like Beautiful. I can't use the consciousness that's creating the problem to solve it. That's Einstein said that. It I was going to say Albert Einstein, yeah. That's that's Albert that's Einstein, he said the same idea, Gurdjieff mm-hmm. said it, which he said it many, many years before Einstein did. But it's this thing is that there, there are decisions I made and forces that operate in our culture and in our families that hypnotize us, that put us to sleep, that condition us to a certain way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the model of which I start to meet the world that the anthropologists call it our worldview, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It becomes our worldview. It's the way we look at things. It's the lens we put on. You know, one of the things I loved about cultural anthropology is you get to study these other cultures and the stuff that you think, well, this is the reality. Well, wait a minute. No, it's not. That reality was constructed by the culture you're living in. Mm-hmm. That is not reality because in this other culture, like one culture we studied has no, no idea or concept of jealousy. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. Now, it's hard to imagine our culture is so interested in possessing things and right mm-hmm. and having things. 
man, there's a lot of jealousy and envy that goes on in our in our culture. Mm-hmm. In this one culture I studied, I can't remember where it was right now. They don't. In fact, the woman, she has multiple husbands. Mm-hmm. One of them's much more domestic. One of them's more of a sexual partner. Another one's the defender of the family. Mm-hmm. Another one goes out and gets food. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's got a crew that works for her. And they don't feel jealous about one another. They all just accept the roles they're in, and they play those roles quite, quite well and feel good about themselves. Yeah. And they don't have this thing about we're sharing this person and there's, I'm going to lose something if I, if they don't give me my love. Right. Right. Fascinating to me. Just so well, it's, it's so far. Yeah. Well, it's so, those things. See, I think we, I think we have to have a, this is where the intellect comes in. You know, we're always t- talking about going to your gut, but it's like, you can't go into your gut with something like that because, because you literally have no, ba- no basis, zero basis for experiential empathy. You can't even understand what that's like. So, so that's, you know, that's why, you know, we, you know, we, 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 we smile and laugh at the idea because we go like, it's, it's our bewilderment. That right. is, you know, it's, it's, it's like, because you go to imagine a world, imagine a world. If you know, it's, it's sort of like, no, I well, can't John imagine. Lennon's song. I mean, John Lennon's song, imagine, I mean, we all yeah, love yeah. it, but it's hard to, Oh, that's real. That's really true because it's yeah. It's it's like he and he in there says it's easy to do. Of course, it's impossible to do. That's right. Uh, You know, nice, nice of John to believe so highly of us. (laughs) No, but it's it's so fascinating. But but so but that just gives us a clue. See, I think that the thing that's always been exciting about that for me is that that if my reality is is has been constructed by me and the culture i'm living in and stuff there is a possibility of me constructing some other possibilities within that framework and look that's what we're talking about is freedom isn't it in one way I, I, wait a minute wait a minute i love that what you just said i built if i built this or if i participated in building it yeah i can build if i created something See again, you're this is that angle you're giving me in, in our relationship, Alan. It's like, why could you know, just just the hypothetical, just the, the the rhetorical question, how why couldn't I build something else? Why couldn't I create something else? And, and then we take it out of the rhetorical and say, maybe I can. That's right. Oh, listen, and that's look at you and I believe that that's part of our work with people. I mean, we love it. Yeah, somebody comes in with this idea that they're just oneself, and we just present to them to something that's so basic to our understanding that there's mm-hmm. another that you are not comprised of one part self you have all mm-hmm. these self parts and if you go in dialogue with them there may be another idea people go oh my goodness i mean i know it is well, simple, the simplest way to do that is is somebody says to me says something and i go like what else do you think about that and it's like just that that question what else do they, they say and then you go like okay well let me show you what you just showed me you know it's like yeah and it's like and, and, but it's and it's such a wonderful revelation first and pl- plus the idea that you know i always say the myth of singularity is at the root of so much of the problems that we have is that we uh, especially those of us who are self-condemners is that we're we're mostly beating ourselves up for not having one way of thinking about something and one way of feeling about something do i feel am i right about this or am i not it's like no you're many things about this and it's like and then what we're telling people is that's normal you know because i mean think of we've we've said this before alan but tell me if this i think this i think you we've talked about it i spend more time i think it's true for you too i'm asking it's 
I spend more time in my work with people in therapy, showing them how they are not crazy than I do treating crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, no, this, let me show you how you make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and that, that, that I, I'm right with you on that, man. And that, you know, it's something I shared on Thursday night. Uh, I don't think it was at the first half of the meeting. So I don't think it was on the recording, but it was mm -hmm. the second half when I talked about how last week when I was, uh, when I had my therapy session, I was crying about this realization of how little self-compassion I've had in my life. Mm -hmm. And that was that moment. I was asleep. I mean, I couldn't see that, that I had so little self-compassion that I had told I was in this trance. And there was something the therapist said the week before I was dealing with some feelings about something that happened a while ago in my life. And she says, you know, she says, you don't give yourself a possibility to really support yourself to feel that, that experience you had. And it kind of struck me and it's like, wow. And what it's meant to me after I sat with it, it was like, she was saying, you don't have any compassion for yourself. You just see yourself going through this life and it's your job just to deal with it, but without any, without any compassion for the experience you're having. Mm -hmm. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And then, like I said, in the session, I mean, I cried for 40 minutes in that mm -hmm. session yeah. at such a deep level. And it was the first time in, and my dad died when I was 11 and my grandpa and my grandma and my mom, my grandma would had passed away. It was a step grandma. I wasn't that close to her, but my grandpa and my mom were just so grief struck with his death. My dad was the only child. So this was my grandfather's only son. And mm -hmm. every time I was with him, he would sit there and he would lament, you know, you're not supposed to bury your son. You're not supposed to bury your son. Your son is supposed to bury you, right? It was a big supposed to, mm -hmm. you know, that was when, now, as I look back, that's when I really, this idea that there are supposed to's in the world really became highlighted, right? It was yeah, like yeah. somebody took a highlighter and said, hey, pay attention. This is it, boy. This is how life is supposed to be. And I could never, you know, and so that was when I was 11. I'm 69 years old. For 58 years, mm -hmm. I could not forgive my grandfather for that because I would sit next to him and he wouldn't ask me about my pain or my grief, right? Mm -hmm. He would be so wrapped up in the pain that he was having and what his experience was. And he'd sit there in the car. He'd pick me up to take me to the shade the plastic sunshade company, that was his business. Mm -hmm. And I was going to help out. We used to do that every Saturday, my dad and I, or most Saturdays, not every Saturday, but most Saturdays we go out and help grandpa. And before we go out there, he'd come in his car and he had one of those old, was it a Plymouth where you had the, the transmission up on the board, you press drive. Yep, yep. Was it, was I, it I, remember, I, I remember the buttons. I don't remember what car. I it think was. it was a Plymouth. It might've been a Dodge, but it might've been mm -hmm. in Plymouth. And you put the transmission in before he'd sit there before he'd press one of the buttons, he would just cry for about 20 minutes, maybe a half an hour. It felt like a day for me at, you know, mm -hmm. at 11 years old or 12 years old at that point in time. And I was, I think 12 probably. And then I would sit there and, and secretly inside, I'd say, grandpa, you know, I'm part of your son. 
I'm still here in your life. Your dad, your son can exist through me. Now, I, I didn't have those words at 12 years right, old. Right. But I felt something like that, something akin to that, right? Well, the other day when I started to get into this pain about the lack of compassion I had for myself, I said spontaneously to, to Dr. Allen, the therapist I'm seeing, I said, I go, wow, I just had a wave of compassion for my grandfather. I go, that's amazing. That as I'm more compassionate for myself, I'm now finding compassion for him. And I started crying about the pain he was in. <laughs> it, was, mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a powerful experience, man. I, I didn't realize that. Um, you know, I think I've been struggling with a low-grade depression, man. Yeah, really. Right. Well, and when, it's, and when it's in there at that low-grade, you know, we hate low-grade, but it's almost like, a, you know, be careful. That's kind of a misnomer because it, it can really be pr problematic. But one of the things, I appreciate you sharing that on Thursday, and I appreciate you bringing it back up here. And because one of the things I want our listeners to, to, to get too is is when you because i'm listening to your language specifically and getting that you're going like so i you know, i'm learning how much i didn't have compassion for myself it's like now i want people to understand this work in progress thing it's like people who people who follow you people who follow us they they, they understand a lot they you know one of the things i always say about about us personally is you're going to know more about us than you ever wanted to know you know, right. we're, we're, you know people people you know the the the, the self-disclosure ethic ethicist you know that we we drive them crazy. Crazy. They go, they go like, you, you're not supposed to say that shit. What I want people to hear, and so I'm going to talk about Al, I'm going to talk about you for a second, Alan. And it's like to say, you're listening to Dr. Berger talk about becoming aware of how he's not been self-compassionate. And keep in mind, you're this is the same guy who has who has taught us about self-compassion, who has given us multiple i can give i could give multiple examples from his story right now of of him having compassion he he is a self-compassionate person it's like this is where the layers come in this is where you realize it or you or you think about going deeper and deeper and deeper and like you know never you know never never dust your hands off and think well that's done we're done with that kind of thing it's like it's it's like that none of this what he's talking about with with his insight with his with his uh in his therapy now and with his uh, re revisiting the, the relationship with the grandfather is, is to negates a thing about his compassion for himself. Right. What it does is it deepens it his deepens compassion. It. It go and, I, and if you, I didn't have any self-compassion, I wouldn't have celebrated 50 years. Yeah. I'm well, thinking. it's, it's like, it's like you, it's like you open up, a, you didn't even know there was a door there yeah. and you know, and that's what you do when you go into therapy sometimes is, you, you know, you just instead of worry about doors, you just knock down walls and it's like, you know, and you go, I didn't even know this stuff. And that's the thing I hear from you. That's so cool to hear is just, Oh, and you see, and by the way, you see immediately nowadays because of who you are now, the possibilities when you recognize this deficit, Oh my God, this has never been here. You know, it's not like, oh, poor me. This is horrible. This is like the possibilities. Yeah. Amazing. That's right. No, that's so, it's so true. It's so true. And it's really great you pointed that out because we are dealing with layers. And, you know, I even love how it was said in the big book, more will be revealed. And that's been constantly, so always. More will yeah. be revealed. More will be revealed. You take off one layer, there's going to be another layer to it. You know, that, that this work that we've done, and, and, I, and I'm glad for this is that it's unending right there's not a we don't there's no finish line to it it's just yeah. that we keep we keep integrating these experiences you know at deeper and deeper levels there's always going to be something to integrate this is a, a lifelong journey that we're on 
It's you know that's interesting too, Alan. This is, this is that that kind of does one of those bumper car emotional bumper car things for me. It punches it, it's it's because I you know I try you know it's hard sometimes you know to find the words you know yeah. and, and and that's a weird thing I think probably for people to hear from either one of us because we don't ever seem to be for a loss of words. But it's it's uh, but the the what is being revealed in my life and 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 i believe it's largely because of aging and and losing people and things like this is is or that's what's precipitating it is because the words aren't new yeah. the 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 lessons aren't new they're you know it's like how often how often do i come back in the course of one day to some revelation of how powerful being fully in the present moment is it's yeah. like it's so and I don't know how to describe how, why that's different or how that's different than when I was 45 or 50 or yeah. yesterday. But it's like there's just something deeper yeah. that is happening. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. And that's, okay. that is what's going on here. And if we bring it back to this thing about this, you know, how, you know, seeing that we're asleep, right? Understanding. Well, oh, wow. Know, the, you're talking with the awakening continue. The awakening never stops. It never stops. And, and that's the other thing that we see when we begin it. You know, the good news is, 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 you know, I, and I've used this a lot. I love that idea of just sometimes inserting a little reasonable doubt. There may be another way to look at this situation. I may not be seeing something that's going on here to be able to deal with it better. See, one way of thinking about recovery, and I got this from you, is that now we live life with more of a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. yep. And that doesn't mean that we're insecure. See, I, I don't want mm -hmm. to conflate the idea of reasonable doubt with doubting being a doubting Thomas all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What we're just saying is, is that I'm always has it have this curiosity. And, and I love that term, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. big part of recovery is recovering your curiosity. And Absolutely. we have this curiosity that, you know what, there may be another way to deal with this. There may be another way to look at just, this. Just maybe just, and, and just I, you know, one of, one, of, one of my little nutshells says curiosity is that is the primary ingredient in respect. And it's like, it's, you know, because curiosity is the opposite of assumption in my mind. And, and it's like, or it is for today, uh, I, but it's, uh, uh, who knows what it'll look like tomorrow, but, but it's, um, but curiosity about ourselves is actually taking us towards self-respect. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. 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 So, you know, this Patrick sent in, in the chat, he says, well, okay, guys, so, so how do we do that? How do we start to wake up? And what role does self-awareness play in this whole thing? And that's such a good question, Patrick, is because self-awareness really seems to be such an important ingredient in this whole process of waking up. Absolutely and, essential. Yeah. You know, it really is essential. And, you know, like I said, I think Bill had there's a paradox here because the awareness of me not wanting to wake up helps me wake up <laughs> see that's the weird paradox in this whole thing is that you know i remember in the beginning and and you know my sponsor tom is here with me right now out in pennsylvania and helping me get settled you know we talked about we were just talking about the other day he says god there was so much you didn't want to see <laughs> 
when you were first getting sober. And he, and he says, it's been so interesting to watch the unfolding of that. Mm-hmm. You know, as you, as the more time you have, your awareness is getting fuller and fuller and has a bigger, a larger breadth to it, right? And range and, and all of that other stuff. But I say this all the time that, that we talk about the disease of addiction being a disease of denial. But the truth of it is, is the human condition promotes a limited awareness of ourselves. And so what happens is, is I constrict my awareness to only see what I want to see. In psychology, they call it selective inattention. (laughs) I do not pay attention to stuff that, that, that I are, are going to mess with my mind. So, you know, if I'm looking at my alcoholism, for example, if you confront me about my drinking, I'm going to look at all the things that tells me it's not a problem. I'm going to not attend to those things that would indicate that it's a serious issue in my life. The same with this emotional dependency thing that we've been talking to people about with emotional sobriety. It's hard to see that when I think of myself as so independent, right? And as a man, I'm supposed to be really independent. You know, real men aren't dependent. You know, we're John Wayne-ish. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's, we got the John Wayne genes in us, right? That, you know, I'm going to take care of myself. Um, or what is it like? <laughs> Yeah. Let's go back. Let's go back to to what you did said earlier because about about I forget what your the uncle's name was that was that we were that we were mind mapping, but it's like that that's where that selective and I'm, and I'm asking this sort of as a question because again different little angle on this so so that's where that selective attention gets we gets trained in us anyway because one of the things that happens too is I I get the, the absolute selective attention to protect myself and protect my you know my that my alcoholism itself takes on as a great lawyer to not to protect not to keep me drunk but to protect my right to keep drinking but it's like we also but but initially we learn it because we can't afford to look at other things we have to keep Keep our eyes out for the Uncle Ralphs or whoever they are. We, ha- I have to, I have to watch uh, emotionally. I have to watch out for the sighing women, you know, who might be dangerous to me that I need to that I need to protect. So basically, it's just that survival instinct that at least at least contributes to that learning the selective attention as an adaptive behavior. Yeah, that's you're right. right. Exactly. Okay. You're right. You're barking up the okay. right tree. Okay. Okay. That, that's the beginning of it. And mm-hmm. so at that point in time, what I'm, you know, discouraged to do is to use all that I know. Now, that's a lot of times even preverbal, right? You know, mm-hmm. if you're crying, you know, if I if you're if I'm your daddy and I've got little Tommy in my hands mm-hmm. and you know you're nine months old and I hand mm-hmm. you off to someone you don't feel good with and you start crying. I say, oh, come on now. This is your Aunt Claire. She's fine. She's fine. I've already started on a nonverbal basis to get you to distrust yourself, to not honor yourself, to to discard yourself, betray yourself. You know, I love what our buddy John Amodeo said. Mm -hmm. So powerful. I mean, his book, Love and Betrayal, is still, I, I think, just a masterpiece. I love it. There's so many gems in it. And one of the things he says to people that are struggling with betrayal, and he's really trying to help empower them, he says, before someone else betrays you, you have betrayed yourself. Oh, absolutely. He goes, self-betrayal precedes other betrayal. He says, you 
are in a relationship and you're not looking at some of the stuff that's going to tell you there's a problem. It's interesting you say that because it reminds me of something I, that I, have, I haven't done in a while, but I used to do for people who are really horribly abusive to themselves in many ways, maybe not even physically, but but to use an example is, is every now and then you come over and just slap me. What I learned to do as a kid is if I'm really getting to be a good at protecting myself is when you make a, when people make a certain move, just that, that, that resembles moving toward me, I just slap myself. You know, I, I slap myself and go, it's okay. I got it. I got it. And we don't think of it that way, but it's amazing to me when I've shown that to people and demonstrated people. And I want to say for the record that I have, have over the years, it's interesting. I used to, to make the point. I used to slap myself pretty hard to make the point because it'd get people's attention. I want you to know, so either self-compassion or I'm you know, just a, a growing into a bigger baby. I will beat myself up. So the, so, so, because I think probably I can do it in a way that's going to hurt a little bit less than what you're getting ready to do. I just love that term, the psychological adaptation syndrome. That's what we well, do. Well, some of the, okay, let me ask you this in terms of Patrick's question, in terms of what do you do? I'm a big, I, I love journaling. I think, I think, and I think I love taking all the rules off journaling, but I love list making and journaling sometimes. And it's like, one of the things I'm thinking is when you, because we're talking about any one of these little examples we're giving, what happens when we become aware of them is we have awakened to them. And our tendency is as human beings is we will awaken to things and then we hit the snooze button and we go back to sleep and we forget them. Sometimes it takes multiple times to awaken to something in my life before it actually becomes a part of me. Yes, and, and, right. and I, you know, and, oh, I forgot, you know, and, I, and the compassionate messages I heard from in an AA meeting a long time ago, which is as humans, we're forgetting machines, you know, and so what we don't need is we don't need better memories. We need a system and a life, and this is support system that is designed to remind us, Yes, you know, we are, we are each other's post-it notes, you know, That's just right. by our very, you, you know, no, I don't even, you don't have to tell me, but I just, I just remember more when I'm with you guys than when I'm, when I'm not. And it's like, but the idea is, is it, is it too simplistic to say, make a place in your journal that you can return to that just, it, it, that you can call it whatever you want to, but basically it's things to which you have awakened, yeah. you know, and that you are, you are in danger of forgetting. So you put it down there. And so that as part of what you do is you review the list on a regular basis so that you stay open to those things. I love that. that. I love that. I think that works totally with what I'm talking about. And, okay. you know, the other thing that you and I keep saying is that, you know, as hard as it is, don't run away from your pain. That mm -hmm. pain can be the alarm going off. See, that's the way that I love the way that Gurdjieff says it. He says, when there's pain in our life, it's the alarm clock. It's our alarm clock. He says, yes. the problem with most people is they hit snooze. That's right. <laughs> they keep right. hitting the darn we snooze do. button. They don't want to. They don't want to wake up. So they hit snooze, and they keep ignoring the lesson that's inherent in the pain or the awareness that mm -hmm. can surface if you embrace that situation in in this in the way that we're talking about and looking at it to see what is this telling me about my life and how I'm living my life. Yes. You know, we call it using it as a reflection, as a mirror to see ourselves in. Right. And it becomes so powerful once we once we do that and once we start to do that, it becomes such a key to our, our ongoing awakening. Right. And it becomes at first it, it seems unthinkable. 
and then later that changes to it becomes it all if you keep practicing it becomes like anything else you keep practicing it becomes automatic and it's like there's a, one this is one of my nutshells that, that i actually have on a poster size thing in my office that just says uh, always move towards your demons because they take their power from your retreat and i always want to always tell people the second part of that is the most important part it's like not moving toward them is not a neutral thing yeah. it's, it's like it, 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 you basically the more i cringe yeah. The more I duck and cover, the more I try to hide, the more empowered that that demon is. And so the idea of standing toe to toe with it, face to face, eye to eye, that's the challenge. Those demons only have the power that we give them. Well, listen, what an important show today is. I think we've really covered some very, very important topics. And, you know, I'll be looking forward to Patrick joining us next week. Mm -hmm. And Patrick's going to put the, John's book, the link to that, in the show notes. So you'll be able to find his link to his book. And it's like I said, I, I recommend it all the time whenever I'm dealing with a couple that's struggling with betrayal. It's, it's an outstanding reference and resource for people. And, you know, and our, and our thoughts and our love go out to John, who's, you know, struggling with his own issues in his life at this point in time. He's making progress. He is making progress. God bless him. All right, Tom, another great Thank show. You. Patrick, we'll look forward to your voice next week, and he'll be back with us, and he's giving us a <laughs> thumbs up and waving to us. From... He, also, he also left me a note that said, what the fuck were you guys doing? It's like, <laughs> I don't know what that's about. But we'll, we'll... <laughs> we'll get to that next week. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with Then with glass in hand and children on one knee Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing entertain me like nobody else so here's to us my old friends until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again with glass in hand and children on me bring some stories bring your stories back to me